my end goal is, hey, we've got to take everybody down a tenth of a second in their fly 10 time. Like, I think it's so much effort for so little mm-hmm. reward at that high end. First, in your early acceleration, you'll see massive improvements because it's so much to do with overcoming inertia and being able to apply force rapidly. That was Nick DeMarco, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. If you're a coach tired of using Excel or clunky software for your athletes, you'll definitely be interested in today's sponsor, Strength Coach Pro. Strength Coach Pro is a digital training platform designed to help strength coaches create, distribute, and track programs for their clients. It's easy to tell that Strength Coach Pro was created by a coach for coaches. The versatile program builder makes it easy to build out detailed training programs, distribute them to athletes, and track the progress, all without spreadsheets or data entry. One of the best things about Strength Coach Pro is that there are no recurring fees. You pay one fee and you get lifetime access to the program. And to check out what Strength Coach Pro can do for you, head to strengthcoachpro.com. That's strengthcoachpro.com. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Thanks for being here. Today's guest is Nick DeMarco. Nick has been the director of sports performance at Elon University since 2018. Nick is well-versed in the intuitive aspects of athleticism. He's made it to the level of the NFL himself as an athlete, and he also has a PhD in health and human performance. Nick is skilled at applying logical models to a high-performance training environment and also has an incredible intuitive sense when it comes to developing athletes. He's been a guest on multiple episodes of this podcast and is a sought-after speaker in the world of physical preparation. On today's show, Nick will give an overview of the past seasons since we last talked on the podcast. He'll chat about the success of the football team and their low injury rates. Nick will give his evolving take on critical elements to cover when preparing players for the speed and movement demands of the game of football. He'll also be talking about his weekly speed and strength training format, so how he puts together a training week. He'll talk about the metrics that he measures for players and much more. Nick's ideas are both cutting edge and incredibly pragmatic, and they're useful for any sports performance coach or sport coach. This was a really fun episode and also great to listen to afterwards and take notes on. I'm excited to get you guys this show, so let's get started with episode 345. Hey, Nick, welcome back to the show. It's great to have you here, man. Thanks for having me, Joel. Excited about it. Yeah. Uh, hey, so I was seeing some really cool videos that you're posting of the football team agility training in the summer going into the season. I was thinking to myself, I'm excited to see how all that goes. You know, it's, it's really been really good talking to you about that, the perception action coupling and what things transfer to the game out of that process. Could you give me an overview of how the last season went for the football squad? Obviously, everything just ended up not too long ago. And just some thoughts from the past season and how your agility and perception reaction, all that came together. Yeah. Well, it's the most successful season that we've had here, so that's always a great thing. We were top 15 team most of the year. At one point, we had lost to Vanderbilt, our FBS money game, the first game, and we were in that game, even in the fourth quarter, down to the wire. And then from there, we went on like a six-game win streak, and then sadly, we dropped two in the middle of the year and then came back strong, one out to make it into the playoffs. So we finished the regular season eight and three, and then we... uh Sadly, lost round one of the playoffs, but it was nice to make it back to the playoffs, be one of the top teams in the FCS. So overall, Chuck Up is a pretty successful year, but hopefully we can build on it and, and continue to kind of make that a benchmark and then hopefully 
move past that and continue to win some games in the playoffs here. But overall, it was a really fantastic season. I think we did a pretty good job of maximizing our our capabilities of the potential we had and, and guys playing pretty well across the board at all positions. And it was a very low injury rate for us, which is is great. And, you know, I think strength coaches want to pat themselves on the back and say that was their job, but it goes hand in hand with our head coach has been fantastic to work with. And he does a great job on his practice design. He really cares about not only our input, but sports medicine, the athletes, and, and really trying to do everything we can to maximize our weekly layout, our camp layout, our off season, and does a great job of putting the focus on keeping guys as healthy and, and as fresh as possible. Yeah, man, I, I had a question that kind of went with the one I just asked you, but I'll skip down a little bit. And that was something that's been on my mind lately. I mean, it's always been on my mind, but especially in light of the podcast I just ran with Michael Zwiefel, who has went from strength coach to actually being a skill uh, skill coach working with D-backs at Wisconsin Lacrosse. And uh, just how do you measure, uh, like, the, and like you said, I, I like how you didn't just say, oh yeah, well, we did, we killed it in the weight room. And of course, you know, the guys didn't get hurt. You, you, you're looking at the whole picture. And I think sometimes it's easy to get isolated, especially when you're paid to do a job, you know, and I'm curious too, like, what do you think, again, this is multifactorial, but for a strength coach, for a strength program to be maximally effective, to really be able to, to have an impact on a game, what strength coach, sport coach interactions do you think need to be really solid, like solid and how so? I'm just curious as to more nuts and bolts of that interaction. And with that said, also, I feel like if you could do the, the worst situation would be a sport coaching situation where the team was just getting like destroyed with volume. And it's almost like it seems like there would almost be like a window of opportunity for what you were doing as a strength coach to really be impactful. And it's like the more your team is getting hammered, it's almost like that window closes is the picture I have in my head. If that makes sense. I'm, I'm just curious if your thoughts on that, that idea, and yeah. just that concept in general. I mean, I think. Sadly, it is, it's far more, more important than we'd like to lead on, or, or at least from, from what I hear with, with some folks that think, you know, if you just do a great job in the weight room, that's all that really matters. But, and in some places, maybe it's the other way where they're like, oh, the sport coach doesn't even let me do what I want in my sector in the weight room. But I think it's kind of a combo of the two. Obviously, we should be an expert in the, the physical side of things. Hopefully you have good enough knowledge in the sport you're working with of some of the technical and tactical elements of the sport as well. But anything that is physical related, I feel like we should try and intertwine with the sport coach as much as possible because it's like the analogy of a bunch of people that are like blindfolded touching the elephant. <laughs> Everyone thinks it's a completely different thing because of their perspective or you send four people into the forest and one is a agronomy major and only focuses on like the foliage and the grass and another's a business person he says chop all this stuff down we could sell it for x amount like you can't underestimate how much your lens impacts obviously the perspective that you have so when i watch practice i understand the technical and tactical sides relatively well as a former athlete and i still love the sport of football but i look at it through the physical lens i'm like oh gosh we just spent 8 minutes doing that drill was it worth mm -hmm. that cost like did we actually gain that much out of it so i think it's really helpful when you have the sport coach who he sees it through his lens of this is what we have to do to be prepared to play and know our assignments and hopefully improve at some of these technical elements 
And then you have this, the performance side who is like, well, here's what we need to do to physically be prepared. And not only just more, 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 more conditioning, but to physically be prepared, they also need to be fresh enough to go in there and play and they need to be healthy enough to go in there and play. So I think if you can combine those two elements and really everything that you do, even your off season, I think it's important to go the other way. Like, Hey, what technical and what tactical elements would you like to be included, especially in the sport of football where they can't do skill work the way that basketballs or soccers can. So whether that's, you know, routes on air being built into your weekly system, some of your seven on seven stuff, small sided games like that. I think having that relationship where each way you're open to some of those ideas is obviously a perfect scenario, but it's just unrealistic without the buy-in of the head coach and his support to really accomplish a whole lot meaningful. You could do a great job in the weight room for your portion of the year. And if you just pass the baton and you're no longer involved and they hammer guys with high volume and every day's physical contact and there's no undulation of workloads, like you're going to have injuries and issues no matter how great your off season went. So I think it's, it's very, very important, obviously. And what we can carry over, I think it's really hard to quantify like, Oh, you know, we got better at agility. Like you mentioned, or we, our conditioning's up, our speed numbers are up, our strength is up. Great. Like you could, I think we had a great program in 2019 and that we were kind of a bad football team, but we had a ton of turnover at the offensive line position. Like we just didn't have the players to, to really succeed. And I would say we're a better program now because each year you're trying to improve and, you know, hopefully the program we gave the guys this year was better, but also, I mean, the margins are, are pretty thin. Mm-hmm. I would say we did a better job, but we did a good job then I would hope yet our wins and loss records are completely different. So I think hanging your hat on just wins and losses is very tough to do because that has so many factors, but we can contribute certainly to helping the entire unit improve and, and hopefully at least move the needle towards maximizing our potential of the roster that we have. Yeah. Hearing you talk about that, it makes me think just about how in something as multifactorial as a college sports team that you have to be familiar in your own head with the laws of logic like and not running mental heuristics to think that something that is important or isn't or that this is the result of you know less injuries or that but the ability to look beyond that and have like an interconnected thought process as well backed with logic i feel like there's probably a way of thinking almost too that kind of goes with the ability to see that big picture uh, in more the high performance model versus and it also kind of makes me think about Scott Prohaska when he was on the show back a while ago talked about like business CEOs or high level CEOs talk to like a lot of people a day. They make a lot of like human level connections. It would be, I guess, the same idea as a head coach or within the department, the system a lot. There's so much you think about like a brain, right? Like how many neuronal connections are within that brain? And then how many connections are within the high performance, you know, just the, the sport. And it's, It'd be almost interesting if you put a number on that. You know, we talk about like numbers that matter or whatever. Like what if you measured how many contacts, how many people did you talk to today about, you know, the, the team or whatever, you know, I'm just, I'm just kind of spitballing with my mind, but I, I just think it's yeah. so cool how you approach just the logic and open-mindedness that you take in your role and the connectedness of the system. I just, I find that really cool and interesting to, to hear about that. Yeah, that's a great point. Cause I mean, 
I think the more feedback you get in, obviously the better because everyone, like I said, is going to have a different perspective. So whether it's the O line, you know, even if you do a good job of undulating your practice, okay, our skill guys had less high speed distance. Say they're good to run tomorrow. Well, what do your line guys do? Like they just did the exact same thing. They hit each other and their shoulders are sore. Their necks are sore. Like, what are you doing to undulate the stress for that group is completely different. And you would miss that if you only worry about skill guys and hamstring injuries. So every position coach, the, the sports medicine staff, the strength staff, the athletes, like there's so much valuable information that's free just from good conversations and, and just even people's body language and, and asking the right questions in your evals before or after the season, et cetera. Yeah, with, uh, you know, I'm glad you mentioned too what you did in the sense that, like with the offensive line, because it would be easy. You know, we, our last, I forget when our first conversation was, I think it was like four years ago, maybe. I'm trying to remember if it was, I think it was before 2019 or maybe it was 2018, but where you were talking about the mirror, dodge, chase, and score, uh, agility, the perception action categories. And it would be easy on the, if you're only looking at that to say, well, wow, you guys didn't win as many games then and now you had a really good season. And what did you do? What updates did you make to the, you know, as, and obviously, you know, updates are good and, and I'm sure your thought process had, has taken some new things. But with that caveat, I am curious, and you mentioning, you know, the offensive line as well. I am curious if you've gained anything or, or made any adjustments to those basic, you know, four, anything you've noticed out of those things or, or are emphasizing more or less. I'm just curious if any thought process changed or adjustments since the last time we talked about that in about 2018? Yeah, I would say um, the biggest update is we still use the same categories. I think uh, I could, it'd be really hard to imagine myself not using those categories. Mm. Like it's just so simple of like what the main principle of performance is offensive and defensively, like create space, eliminate Mm. space is pretty cut and dry for most sports. But I would say the biggest update is even those agility games are very general and trying to get away from just too general of stuff. Like early on, it's okay to incorporate like the one drill that we do. I don't know if I can verbally explain it. Hopefully I can, but you know, if you're working in a five yard wide box and it's 10 yards long and you and I are facing each other and my goal as the offensive guy is to get around you while staying in that five-yard window through 10 yards. And your job as a defender is to stay in front of me or get me out of that five-yard window, thus protecting that space, quote-unquote. You're looking at you know special teams uh, as a gunner. You're looking at a kickoff return situation, punt from a punt return standpoint, trying to block, trying to cover. You're looking at DB and a wide receiver on their one-on-one matchups where everything starts kind of on the line in a potential press situation. And that's something that's so easy to do week one. Like the most distance they're going to run is 10 yards, and it's in a pretty constrained, tight space where the high speed's not that great of a deal. But right away, you're getting some of that very valuable perception action aspects of it. And then just trying to get under a little bit more specific. Like maybe now it's two on two, and the defenders, you predetermine, hey, you're in a man-to-man coverage scenario. What are you going to do to try and beat that? You're in a zone scenario. Give the athletes a chance. Hey, you pick, huddle up before this. What do you want to be in a zone defense, a man defense, but your goal is to stay in front of two separate guys and maybe a little bit larger space. 
And then just trying to take your games. I think Scott Leach does a really good job. He'd be a good guy to have on a podcast at Rhode Island at our conference. He's put out some really good ones similar to what we do. I think his categories are probably very similar, but pursuit drill that looks like the game of football. Obviously, Andy Ryland's a great resource. There's a ton of guys out there doing really good stuff in that area. And I think it's the most important for football just because of how little football you get. But my biggest update would be, I think, early on, I valued that stuff almost too much because it is general in nature. Versus now, you know, weeks one through four, we're really hammering that stuff, say, in like the summer in our more special prep phase. And then as we get further and further along, we're hitting those things still, but our volume is decreasing on the amount of agility we're doing with us because we're opening up now. Hey, let's just actually play the sport of football in a seven on seven fashion. Let's do routes on air. Let's do one-on-ones. And I think we've had more of a reduction in our injuries, which again, it goes back to head coach practice plan, et cetera. But I think a big part of what we've done is giving them the exact stress that they're going to feel on the field. And appropriate doses throughout the week and, and trying to build those volumes as much as we can for camp. And that's the best agility work that they can really get. And then we've taken it into some of our energy system development work. So like our Wednesday is kind of a, I call it a practice preparation. So we don't go in the weight room at all that day. We'll lift on Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday. And on that Wednesday session, the goal is to give them a chance to actually be on the field for a long period of time. I think if every day you're like, Hey, we're on the field. And then we go in the weight room, the max that you're going to be able to be on the field is probably an hour. And then you got to go in the weight room to, to try and get things done in a timely manner with the eight hour constraints. So on that Wednesday session, we want to be on the field for an hour, 15, an hour, 30, pushing closer to the two hour realm to where the first day of practice, if they're out there for an hour and a half, hour 45, it's not the first time that they've been on their feet for double the amount of time they're typically used to. And in that session, we might have some of the canned, just basic change of direction work is kind of a prep and hit, hit some of the things I think you need from a resiliency standpoint. Then some of our agility work, and those are going to be your high effort drills that are not a complete recovery. So it's in part a little bit of preparing them from an energy system development standpoint for the sport as well. And then we'll get into some tempo runs that are variable. So we'll start with your basic just tempo work, but it will do like our kind of spin on it. It's like an eight vector tempo. So they're just hitting different angles instead of everything just being linear. But then when we get into our specific tempos, position specific tempos, it's an offensive guy has a script defensive guy has a script and the offensive guy, it'll tell them a intermediate route, short route, a now route, uh, just like a quick screen bubble stock block, the running backs. It'll say outside zone, inside zone. It'll have a scenario and they get the freedom to pick. Like if it says short route, it's just less than seven yards. They can run whatever they want. And we'll have the whole team up kind of at once spread out across two separate fields, which we're lucky we have a good setup matched up with one partner and, they look at their scripts, so you get the psychological element, too, of you actually have to know what you're doing, get lined up, and that adds a certain level of stress. Hit your play, quote-unquote, and it's going to last somewhere three to five seconds, which is football, and get 
lined up again, look at your script, see the next one. Defensive guy, it'll just tell him a situation. Hey, press man, off in a zone situation, two yards inside. Just give them a variable start position. It's a chance for them to work on their skills that are going to show up in the game at a lower intensity, but build volume, creativity, and allow them to do those things technically while getting our energy system development work done instead of just uh, let's run 100 yards at a a 70% pace. And doing that for the last few weeks, and then we increase it to intensive efforts for the last couple weeks, I think has also been a big help kind of marrying the idea of agility with some of our energy system development. And it's not always like, oh, you combine two good things and it's a great thing. But in this instance, I do think combining those two things has been really helpful. Man, I I love that. It it fits with, honestly, I've been thinking, as I think I mentioned, I've been thinking about Michael Zwiefel's show a lot. And just, it seems like it's really just the more you know, the more you can let go of things that are, I mean, not a total waste of time, but less efficient. And the more you can spend time with what matters. And I think, it, I think that so often in, when, when we have separate canisters for the way that athletes spend their physical time, you're with the strength coach, you're with the sport coach. In that, I think it's very easy for time to get wasted, <laughs> you know, runs to be kind of wasted in some ways, or at least not as efficient as it could be. And I just love how everything really seems to be pushing towards allowing things to be more specific. and. Michael had said a lot about that on the specificity of task representation. Ultimately, that's where you want to go. And But I think at the same time, it does take, I think people want to, it's like, all right, what's the drill? Just give me some drills to do. You know, it tends to be the common thing. Hey, give, yeah. me, give, me, give me the setup. Give me the drills. You know, give me the, the script. And I think a lot of this stuff, especially moving towards more specificity, there is an art to it. You have to understand the game kind of yourself even you have to in in a way be able to put yourself in the shoes of those drills those even like what you were describing to me in that five meter space with the box and and the the mirroring or the defensive space you kind of have to viscerally understand on your own level what it feels like to do that and i think the, the creativity isn't as easy as just oh hey here's some exercises i mean i think it helps us get started obviously and it's a good we, we all yeah. need a place to get started of course but i think that that's where I just appreciate like appreciating the art form of specificity because it's more than just going to school and learning something or learning a script. It's something you have to actually spend a lot of time with and viscerally feel and allow players options. And I just, I, I really love what you, that, that whole description of that sounds like it's so immersive for athletes on that level of developing game specific uh, skills and creativity. Yeah. And I mean, that's always uh, the goal. And I think when athletes feel a session that is more like, what they're doing obviously it's hard to replicate stuff and you don't want to replicate something that is just a garbage scenario for the sake of it feeling specific but when they can feel things that they naturally gravitate towards and they feel like it's actually helping them on the field obviously you're going to get a little bit more buy-in and 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 that's going to have some good carryover yeah with the esd work uh the like the specific I, i really like how you had like the variable aspect to it i know for me <laughs> i've just been getting into more training variability uh, anyways just on my own even just general training like i'll i'll take like a card deck well i don't even use a card deck i it's, it's sad how much machines are i guess displacing what we used to do on some level. it's also cool <laughs> but it's also like i'm like man this is making me lazy but i'll have like a card flip on my phone 
and I'll do conditioning and be like, all right, if it hurt, if it hits a certain suit, it's sandbag throws over the shoulder. If it's another suit, it's a tempo sprint down the street and how high the card is, is how far I have to go or how many flips I have to do stuff like that. <laughs> but I, dude, I love that so much more. I mean, I, I'll, I'll do, you know, if it's like running five, two hundreds and I have people to run with and you feel the energy of the group and rhythm, this is just more for track or just in general. Like I like that, but if it's me on my own, oh, I like having variability and a level of randomness and not knowing what's coming next that keeps me in the present moment more. And I can imagine that that type of variable work is well received by the athletes in the same way. Yeah. And you know, the, the point I hit on too, is just a psychological aspect. There's so many times it's a guy who like, Oh, he's out of shape when we start camp. And the reality is like, if there's one specific example I can think of. He's one of our best players this past year. And it would be like, Oh, he's, he's always gassed after one drive. And psychologically, he was just swimming when he was on the field. He was so stressed of, mm. where do I line up? Where do I do this? And when he's in an isolated conditioning session, he might have been one of our best, most fit people on the team. But he couldn't display that when it got to a game a lot of times because of how much psychological stress he would have. And I think that's a completely different element that you need to try and involve in your conditioning in some way. and. Also to that point, like, you know, hey, the average play is three to five seconds. The average rest is 25 to 45 seconds, but it's not always rest. Like, what is a defensive player doing in that situation? He's got to look at what the call is. He's got to ID where his athlete is and what his responsibility is. He might have to jog to the other side of the field. There's a lot more that goes into the rest than just standing there where you can kind of just black out and be like, okay, another rep. I can do anything for four or five seconds. All right, I'm done. Try and get my heart rate down. You're only focused on your breathing. It's a completely different experience when there's other information that has to be sorted. And I think that's been relatively helpful and and not making him better in that situation. I think he got better because he understood our defense better. But it is nice to add some psychological elements to your energy system development side of things as well. I wanted to take a quick minute to tell you about my story with our sponsor, Lost Empire Herbs. Several years ago, I had strongman and mental training expert Logan Christopher on the show. And in the interview, I realized that Logan, in addition to deadlifting over 500 pounds and ripping phone books in half, also was the founder of an herbalism company. Long story short, I ended up ordering the Phoenix Formula, one of their flagship products. And In taking that, I noticed increased energy and a decreased reliance on coffee, which honestly, I was kind of expecting that. But what I didn't expect is after a few weeks, I noticed my weight room numbers had increased substantially. And the Phoenix formula also led me to getting shilajit resin, which is found in the Phoenix formula and recommended by a lot of strength coaches, as well as other Lost Empire Herbs products. I've been using Lost Empire Herbs ever since, and I have sponsors of the show that I believe in, that I use, and that I want to share with you. So if you want to check them out, head to lostempireherbs.com slash just fly for 15% off my favorite Lost Empire Herbs products. You get a 365 day money back guarantee. I really enjoy having Lost Empire Herbs as a sponsor of this show, and I hope you get a chance to check out what they have to offer. Let's get back to the podcast. Yeah, I love that. I, it just makes you think about, I, I mean, you know, I, I, not that there's certainly nothing to be gained by just doing typical conditioning runs you're getting there is a level of conditioning that's happening you know that at some point you're probably going to be beyond the game specific elements of it but to me it's almost more the psychological that 
not only matters immensely in that, but also it's something that I just think is not often looked at. It's almost like, and even in doing various episodes of this podcast, the ones that are more on the mind and the psychology are not, to me, it's, 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 I wish more people or wish those episodes were viewed more, but those are actually one of the, some of the lower viewed shows. But the longer I've been in coaching, the more that's one of the first places I look. And I think, especially if you're a sport coach, I mean, even just working with youth soccer, like getting a kid emotionally on the right page. <laughs> I mean, even let alone, ta- uh, you know, tactics at that point is the, the number one priority. And so, yeah, I, I think that's a really a, a great place to look that I, I haven't heard anyone talk about yet, like the psychological in the conditioning, because I think so often, even strength and conditioning on some level, it's kind of in itself is a more like isolated thing. It's like, you know, you could just get super hyped up and hit a heavy squat or something like that, or learn to be comfortable with the discomfort of a lot of running, you know, but that's such a specific thing unto itself in some ways. And to actually draw that out into the psychological is, I love that, man. That's, that's a really, um, that's a cool observation there. With that as well, I did want to ask about the balance. So, I mean, it's probably, I don't know if it's hair splitting at all, but like, I'm curious how I know your move from more general to more specific as you go along, but with the like the balance of more traditional tempo, what is your more traditional, like not variable tempo tend to look like? And what's the ratio of doing just more traditional tempo runs versus the more specific stuff? And at some point, do you completely phase out like the tempo or more linear conditioning type work? Yeah. So at the beginning of the off season, like right now, for example, in our J term, we do one time a week with some just linear tempo. I think it's always easiest to, if you don't use it, you lose it type situation, like have everything in the program at a certain percentage at all times, like never get completely out of shape. It's certainly easier to get in shape when it's time. So we just do once a week. When we go to spring ball, we're only three efforts per week, really. So we practice three times, which is so much different than when you're trying to prep for camp or prep for end season. So. We'll ramp up our conditioning to twice a week and we're having speed work twice a week. So you're getting four on-field exposures of some sort of a running and our volumes and stuff are, are much lower. Our specificity of that stuff is, is very low because in that early off season, we're really focused a little bit more on the output side of things, even with your perception action stuff and not so much the ability to make it through grueling practices because we're only practicing three times a week. So it's just a far easier schedule to prepare for. When we're in the summer, we'll go twice a week on our tempo. And if you're looking at it through like kind of a higher low intensity, like Monday is our, our kind of max velocity focused day. Tuesday, we will hit some linear tempo with a decent amount of volume, but that day will remain linear and our distances will get shorter week by week, but we'll increase our number of efforts because I think that's also a big deal. Just the total number of X cells, D cells that you're getting in, trying to get somewhere near what a game or practice will look like from those efforts. And then Wednesday is kind of a moderate intensity day. That's our practice session day. But I would say it's moderate intensity in the fact that we don't lift. And there's nothing in full speed open spaces where you have to worry about hamstring strains, the issues that you're going to see if you're trying to do high speed sprinting consistently. So we're hitting that bucket kind of on Monday. Tuesday is is very low intensity. 
And guys have always been able to respond relatively well. I think they almost feel better leaving those low intensity sessions and it's followed by an upper body lift. And then Wednesday, we have that practice session. And so we actually do our tempo on back-to-back days. On that day, we do our kind of eight vector oriented stuff. So it's really simple. They're hitting like 135 degree cuts. They're hitting 90 degree cuts, which is just a square. They're 45 degree cuts, which is just, we literally have cones set up as a triangle. They're going around it. Again, want to kind of try and feed into creativity, not just autonomous. Like when you get to the cone, change your break every time. I don't care if you get a spin move, mix it up. But it also gives you that balance from just a robustness standpoint of we're ensuring how many cuts are we going to get off our right foot, our left foot throughout a week. I think that's where your canned agility or canned change direction stuff and, and some of your tempo stuff comes into play is just preparing the tissue robustly in every plane of motion possible. We'll do curves on that day. We'll do a figure eight. And then we have one station that's linear just because it works for our field setup. So it'd be like four guys at each station. And the last station is linear, linear for 50 yards. And it just takes you back to the beginning. So it's there for no reason, except it makes Mm -hmm. it flow better. Uh, And everything else is variable. And we'll run that for four weeks while increasing our volume. And then the last four weeks, we'll get into the ones that I explained to you that are very specific to the position. And the first two weeks will still remain an extensive tempo. The goal is, is skill. It's, you're still going to get that elevated heart rate. We're going to build our volume. And then the last few weeks, it becomes more intensive of getting them used to max effort, the ability to recover, get lined up, and hit those efforts before we get into camp. And then Thursday, we do not do anything on field. It's uh, it's a drawn-out performance prep, large focus on mobility, and we'll hit kind of an upper-body volume day. And then Friday is a higher-intensity day with an XL focus. So everything stays in a shorter distance. Again, just throughout the entire week, the totality of it, you don't want, in my mind, to risk hamstring strain, stuff like that. So we're you know, 20 yards is kind of the max on that day. Most of that is our resisted sprinting, high intensity, a lactic efforts with full recovery. And that is our heaviest kind of strength focused day for lower body, especially for our younger athletes. Cause we'll try and marry the stimulus of XL is your longer ground contacts, a little bit more force driven. So the, the lift will match. And then on Monday, when we're doing our max velocity stuff, that lift is very, especially for our advanced advanced plus athletes rate of force development driven everything in the plyometric side is a little bit more elastic it's a little bit more vertical emphasis and so just trying to marry up those days and the one thing i touched didn't touch on that i think kind of falls in your energy system development standpoint it's it's really not it's just the conditioning is the word i would use for it because that's a lot more all-encompassing than just the energy systems is those monday sessions go from output driven and we're trying to run the fastest fly tens we can to try and, you know, I think if you can get guys running faster and shorts and shirts off with lasers out and it's competitive, you're going to hit higher speeds than you're ever going to hit in a game, hopefully. And at least they're accustomed to those high speeds and you do need to touch on that. But then we'll add in some of our like upright, very, very light resisted chain sprints. We'll add in some like a PVC run I took from Cam Joss. Some people use a med ball to get them in a nice stacked pelvis position, running upright. But really the goal of those two movements is 
you can run at 100% maximal intent without regulating the intensity. It is auto-regulated by the weight that I select or just by having someone not be able to use their arms and having to stick out in front of them or changing their XL buildup. So it might be 10 yards at full speed as fast as you can get with a stick, hold that speed for 30 yards. And the reasoning for those two movements is we want to get guys accustomed to high-speed distance that they'll see in a game. So if they're going to see 250 yards of distance in that high-speed realm on camp day one, we're going to try and get them to 275, 300 yards in a session where they're the freshest they've been. That's the focus of it. They've got full recovery between bouts, but I don't want the first time that they do something on a practice field to be the only time that they've done that. Marrying up with that on those Wednesday sessions, even when we're doing our eight vector stuff and when we get into our really position specific tempo stuff for our skill guys, 15% of what they do will be some sort of combat oriented conditioning efforts. So we'll start with higher length of time, longer recovery, go down to lower, more intensive battles. And our line guys, that's a huge portion of their conditioning is the more combative stuff. And the semi group will be about 30 to 40% in that realm. And the same thing, like Andy Ryland talks about all the time, you wouldn't have guys go out and run 40-yard dashes without sprinting the past, say, 16 weeks. But everywhere across the country, a guy will do nothing to prepare for contact and nothing one-on-one against another human that is combative in any nature and then go out and just start slamming shoulder pads into people. So I think that aspect is helpful too. Yeah, right on. I was going to ask you, you know, one of the questions I had, but you just you just covered it for the most part. One of the questions I had was the ratio of more linear speed efforts, like you said, the flies and the excels versus more the multi-directional stuff. And just wanted you to ex- actually expand on that a little bit. As the year, like you mentioned, moving from more general to specific. So once, is there a certain point that you don't put as big of a priority on the linear stuff and it becomes more just like all-encompassing perception, reaction, time perception? How much do you still carry the linear stuff through the season once you hit a certain point? And how does that change throughout the year? Yeah, so we do keep our linear stuff one time per week, even in our really specific phases. The specific day, it obviously starts as relatively general, but some variable elements instead of just linear and gets into very specific. But on that more general day, the whole goal of that day is just they need to get volume to be prepared for what they're going to go through in camp. And the reason I really like those three days packed the way they are is we hit our high speed distance day one. We hit kind of our volume aspects day two. And then on day three, you're hitting really a multitude of things of total time on your feet. You're hitting a ton of alactic efforts. Like you're getting really high intensity exposures. You've got the variability and we hit tempo on the back end. So the volume of those three days is really high. And when we practice in camp, we kind of run in three-day spurts. And in your weekly model, it's always going to be Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday are kind of your practice days. Friday is lower intensity. Even if you're... Tuesday, Wednesday, or Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, it doesn't matter. It's a a three-day stint. And so I want that three days to be very condensed. And each day has a focus of preparing them for what practice is going to look like. And so that Tuesday, just the easiest day to get volume and the easiest way to make it recoverable 
in my mind is to keep it linear because that Wednesday session is going to be, even though from maybe a nervous system standpoint, it's not that taxing. You start asking people to change direction a ton of times. You're going to have more of your muscular aspects of just some soreness, maybe related to it or things like that from a more structural standpoint, you might create some more residual soreness, but your linear stuff is usually so low intensity and people can really recover from it well, but it keeps that volume very, very high, not only on that day, but in your total weekly plan, we can keep building our workloads because of that one day that we remain linear. In essence, it still does kind of run like your high days are Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and Tuesdays. Yeah. Low, but high volume and Thursdays kind of a nothing on the field. Yeah. So within, um, like, I think you've mentioned this in a previous podcast on how much emphasis you put on data points that aren't actually the sport in terms of like ranking speed or the feedback to the players on their speed improvements, their linear speed improvements, yep. or, or even things in the weight room. I, I think you've touched on this in past podcasts, but I'm just curious to, to rehash that. Uh, like, what what are the things like the idea of like what matters measure it and, and how much do you rank these things and how do you give that feedback to the players? Yeah, I mean, I I definitely fall into the category of just training is testing. Like, I'm not big on, hey, week one, we test, week eight, we test. But but I want stuff to be competitive just because it creates higher levels of intent. So, like, this week, we have Team Builder now, and it's been super helpful. So, I'll have, you know, the line group, semi-group, skill group, leaderboards up on the board, and it's just a vertical jump. You get two attempts at some point throughout the lift. We'll measure it. We'll rank it. It's it's posted up there uh, in our off-season, like, championship it's just a, a game basically there's captains everyone picks and we'll we'll take points for stuff it goes towards those points but anything that i think is important to measure you know we we look at approach jumps we'll look at some of our loaded jumps across different scales we'll do chain sprints like i think the more inputs the better and try and figure out what actually matters because none of it really does matter that much like being good at football doesn't directly correlate to any of those things but giving them a better chance to be good at football does probably correlate to some of those things. So we'll do 10-yard dashes. We'll do fly 10s at, at varying lead-ins, five yards out to a 30-yard lead-in. We do not do any, like, L-drill, pro-agility. I just I yeah, don't I was going to ask things. you. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't see those as a good use of time. We have one RMs, even though it might just be cluster sets where a guy has an open set. If you're working with 18 to 22 year old males, they probably want a chance to touch something heavy. Mm-hmm. So we'll give them those chances, but if we don't have a, a max date ever, it's just, you know, you have an open set on the back end, you feel great, hit it. You don't feel good. Just shut it down where it was. We'll have some rep out sets and every day is a chance to PR. Like if you feel good and it's in a workout where you have a chance, like you can always improve those things. And we'll, we'll look at the data at the end of, of each week and update things. but. I don't put a ton of stock in those things necessarily outside of it is really great to see people improve their jumps, whether it's broad jump, vertical jump, approach jump consistently over four or five years. Like I think it shows you that you're doing something right to where they continue to improve things that might actually have a chance to show up at the field. You know, once you get strong enough, then I think it's more velocity based. Like, Hey, can you produce more power at X load is more important to me than can we take you from a, a 405 pound front squat to a 420 pound front squat like that's not going to show up as much and then you know 10 yard dash i think is something that will show up in some ways the fly 10 stuff the more i'm around it the more i think of it is just that 
dose of high-speed sprinting to keep people safe, then I do a, let's really improve this. Like if you look at our top athlete, first our slowest athlete, uh, say it's a 0.9 flying 10 versus even the slowest guy can at least get close to a one second, one zero four fly 10 if they're a skill athlete. Like if you did the simulcast like they do with Rich Eisen on yeah. uh, NFL Combine, the difference in those two is is nothing really. Like yeah. they're still close enough they can reach out and swipe somebody. Like improving those things is such a you've really got to be committed to improving that top end velocity first. I think it's a chance to get people to run with better mechanics hopefully decrease their chance of, of hamstring strains from consistently exposing them to high speeds. But my end goal is, Hey, we've got to take everybody down a 10th of a second in their fly 10 time. Like I think it's so much effort for so little mm-hmm. reward at that high end First, in your early acceleration, you'll see massive improvements because it's so much to do with overcoming inertia and being able to apply force rapidly that most guys continue to get better at and they have a huge increase early on. And if you're looking at forties for a combine guy, easiest way to improve is that first probably 10 to 20 yards, obviously. So went all around on that one, but there's not a ton that I think of as like, Hey, if they improve this, they're a better football player, but we track a lot of things. And I think that just helps with your program design. Like, Hey, are guys getting faster? Are they, are they getting stronger? Are they healthy? Like you want to take anything and everything in account that you can. But there's not a ton of stock in, hey, this guy went from this to this. I guarantee he's going to be really good at football this year. Like, <laughs> yeah, I just don't think you can you can quantify that or justify that. Yeah. I mean, just in hearing you talk, I could just see that resonating in everything. Like this matters. This is not worth spending that much time about. It's almost like everything has to be judged by, well, how much effort will it take to take this variable to its furthest point? If it takes too much, yeah. it's not worth it. And I really yeah. like that as well with the like it, like the max velocity stuff. Just it's like being more process oriented. Go do it. Injury prevention. How you do it matters. But if we take it so far that every we're going to try to drop everyone's time to the max amount, it's just going to be a waste of time and probably energy as well. I was going to ask you as well, kind of on that topic. And I feel like I already know what the answer is to some extent, but I'm curious because I see this a lot because you mentioned you don't do the pro agility. But I mean, do you do any emphasis on, I mean, basically my question is this is, is all the perception action lateral stuff, is that your change of direction or do you do anything beyond that? I know people do like isolated deceleration stuff or, you know, even like acceleration technique, like kneeling starts. I mean, how far do you get into any of that or like a 90 degree kneeling start or anything like that? I mean, I think, and I feel like too, just my gut says like, you could do that, but it might just be a waste of time, you know, (laughs) like what else could you do instead of that? I'm just curious what you look, how you look at some of that stuff. No. So we will do some of that certainly. So that Wednesday session, like we'll go through kind of our eight vector stuff, which I, again, just think of as a resiliency standpoint, making sure athletes are are robust enough that they, if you hit 135 degree cut, 90 degree cut, 45 and a zero degree cut straight back both ways at different entry speeds out of different positions, you're probably equipped to hit anything between those angles. So we just try and keep it as general as we can and make it a quick part of basically our prep for when we get into our agility. Because it's not like, hey, we do change direction three weeks, then we start agility. It's We're hitting our change of direction as a performance prep extension to get into our agility work and just check off some of those boxes from 
making sure globally that we're not missing anything. They were getting enough cuts off the right leg at, at deeper angles, shorter angles, et cetera. And I do think there's some carryover to just teaching guys how to get in and out of those cuts effectively and feeling it. So we'll go like a one-step approach, two-step approach, three steps, five yards, out of variable positions, out of a two-point start, and try and check off that box by, hey, we've got some change direction work. Same thing in our prep. It's five yards and break. And it's more of a prep for when we get into our agility, they've already accelerated, they've already decelerated, they've hit multiple planes of motion. Some of that is reacting to an opponent. Hey, like you break off of me 20 yards. I run, I break, change your speeds, change your intensity. I think that stuff is very, very helpful, but it is a, a small portion. And it's, I, I consider it our performance prep for our agility sessions, not like the real kind of work that's taking place. And then same thing on our acceleration days. Like if we're timing 10 yard dashes or if we're running chain sprints and, and trying to do some special strength stuff for acceleration, the end of the performance prep where we're warm enough, we'll go into, Hey, let's hit five reps, six reps of variable starts. You're starting on your back, hands behind you. You're starting in a half kneel position. You're starting on your stomach. Like just put guys in weird positions that they're not accustomed to being in and make them get out and accelerate as much as they can. And the thing that is great about it is the tent is through the roof because they're racing their group of peers. And it's really just an extension of, hey, we know they're ready to run full speed because they just ran full speed five times out of a bunch of random starts. But it's not going to allocate a huge percentage of what we're trying to do, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. I really do like the racing off different positions. When I was running track... 20 years ago now shoot we uh, our coach had us do he called it the acceleration complex it's like everyone lie on their stomach you know race 15 20 meters everyone lie on your back roll yep. over race do three donkey kicks and race like also and i i love that and funny enough i i feel like that really i knew nothing about acceleration technique back then <laughs> but i feel like just doing stuff <laughs> out of different positions kind of helped me to self-organize a pretty yep. decent you know te- uh, technique without even really thinking about too much of it and I was I was like that stuff. I was gonna say I guess with the deceleration, what my my um thought would be would be if I always think of how deep do we need to slice things down? You know, like and it's like almost the the least <laughs> the least amount of slicing is the best from an efficiency perspective. And I look at like you mentioned the eight vector, like if we're cutting at ninety degrees, uh, one hundred thirty five, like and it's actually it's it's on your feet, it's dynamic. I always just think, well, how much more do we need to slice it down than this? <laughs> you know, then. Yeah. What's the farthest we need to go and, and, and then get to the, you know, the actual, you know, main meat and potatoes of the workout. So I'm always, I guess I'm always thinking about how, cause I'll see, yeah, people like doing drills, like where it's like, all right, start and stop. They go every like 10 yards and they start and stop on the line, you know, with no like perception. It's just, you're starting. I was thinking to myself, well, what are you thinking about? Like what's, what's, what's the overload here versus if someone did a hard cut at 135 or even 180 degrees, would your leg not be overloaded more doing that? Or is there, you know, I'm always just wondering how far to slice and why, but again, it's also something that not a lot of time is spent on probably in most situations. So even then it's personal preference, (laughs) I guess. And up to, you know, just how do you like preparing for the main stuff? Yeah. All right. So just a couple of closing questions here. One, you know, this has been a lot about football. I am curious what your take is on, uh, these these categories like the perception reaction categories mirror dodge chase score and those 
uh, with some of the other sports that isn't football. Obviously, with different like setups and year, maybe yearly trends of off-season, in-season, what the demands are. I'm just curious, I guess field sports versus court sports, right? Probably a big distinguishing factor right there. But I'm curious what your take is on, and this could probably be its own show. So this can't, <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I mean, I think, uh, I think it's still great to, to have and to use. It's always going to fall back on like, what does the head coach, like what kind of buy-in do you have from him? Because if you're kind of infringing on their realm, that some people will feel like by doing specific work, even though it shouldn't be, it's still very, very general, like unless they're playing the sport, obviously. But even like sport of basketball, they play year round. Soccer plays year round. Tennis plays year round. Like all these other sports have such a different opportunity to just play their sport consistently that it's not as big of a deal as it is for football, where you don't get the chance to play your sport except for very isolated bouts throughout the year. So I think it has less impact on those teams, but I think isolating those qualities of, you know, whether it's basketball or soccer, the ability to win one-on-one matchups and improve that perception action aspect of things, I think is still really important and putting them in variable scenarios, even if it doesn't include a ball, especially as a defender, like you're still as a soccer defender, my goal is to keep in front of you and eliminate your space. So if I can isolate some drills that are very general, I still think you're improving those things. And I think that's important to do. Now, the allocation of time, I don't know. That's going to depend on the time of year, how much soccer they're playing, what it looks like. But even that might be, hey, they play soccer year round. But taking the idea of we do change of direction to prepare for agility, we take isolated agility to prepare for practice. If you're out there on a daily basis and you can do a few drills before they get rolling, they're fun with the ball because it's, it's allowed during that point of the season. I think that's really helpful. And then same for basketball, like so much of what they do is trying to stay in front of another human being and sort through information. Now they get that all the time, but really isolating certain qualities that you want to see, I think could be very helpful in those situations. Yeah. Cool, man. Yeah, that sounds good. I I have um, just a few lightning round questions. I know we're kind of running out of the, our time for today. So I want to ask you, see if we can get through the three of these. <laughs> One of them is, you know, you've been quoted as saying no uh, a little about a lot and a lot about a little. Uh, I'm curious, uh, in terms of strength and conditioning, uh, what are the things, what are some things that you feel like coaches, strength performance coaches should know a lot about? And what are maybe some some varied topics that might be beneficial? I mean, off the top of my mind, I'm like, well, you can move a generalist, like other playing other sports or maybe like music or knowing things about like music or rhythm or art or whatever. I'm just curious anyways on your, you expanding a little bit on that as it pertains yeah, to physical Yeah, and I practice. do have to say, I think I stole my quote from Fergus Conley. I think it was ah. a book like Lessons maybe, but I love the idea of it because I think early in your career for anything, not just strength and conditioning, you know you need to know a little bit about everything that's taking place. Like if you have a complete gap or weakness in what you're trying to do as a coach, it can be covered up if you have some really, really high strengths, I would suppose. But I think the more you know in general early on, even if it's just very, very surface level, the better equipped you're going to be to find one, what is your niche? Like what is it that you're really passionate about? And, you know, if, in a perfect world, say, I, I always think of things through the lens of football, obviously, but if you have a five-person staff in football, like, I'd love for one person to be, hey, energy system development is my niche. Like, I love this. Or 
maybe it's just linemen or working with skill athletes or power development is my thing or speed is my thing. Like Cam Joss is known for that, but I, like Cam Joss is a guy who knows a lot of information about a lot of things, but his niche and what he's really interested in is a little bit more of the speed side of things. I think everyone naturally goes through that. Of I want to learn as much as I can early on about everything. And then now that I understand those things, I want to kind of dive into a topic just because it's of interest to me. And I think the more specialists you have who are good generalists on a staff, probably the more equipped that staff is to, to do some really good things. And then if you want to move into kind of your director role or like a high performance director, like some teams have used at the NFL level, I would say at that point, hopefully you know a lot about a lot of things and you're kind of more of a master of as many things as you could be. And I, I think that's just kind of the natural career path for any career, but in the field of performance, I think, you know, early on, you need to understand as much as you can about the energy system development side, the weight room speed, what carries the dynamic correspondence, like what carries over and just principles of performance more than methods. Like if you understand principles, I think it's really easy to get into to methods and so just having a really strong surface level knowledge of as many things you can that are going to impact athletes, I think is huge for that, that beginning stage, obviously. Yeah. I, I was taking that question real far, like art and music. And I, was, yeah. the department. Yeah, I was taking it way out there, but yeah, that absolutely makes sense. Like, and especially too, to, to find, I think, especially with physical preparation being so a, a very multidisciplinary thing. It's not just lifting weights, you know, or tracking weights or powerlifting, which I think maybe 20 years ago, you would have, people would have thought more like that on some level. But yeah. as I think we're seeing the kind of the full potential of it as all things kind of expand. Yeah, I, 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 lo- I love that answer. Uh, I was going to ask you as well, two more questions with the lightning round here. One, so I know you're a dad of young children, and I'm curious how watching your own children grow and play has impacted your thoughts on the athletic process or just what you've learned uh, in watching them uh, as a dad? Yeah, I think uh, even more than like the athletic process, like some of the things we talked about off air, like kids are just so anti-fragile. Like they'll try anything. They learn things so quickly. Like they have such a bandwidth for for improvement because they just kind of stink at everything they first try, obviously. So, you know, watching my son, like watch, the Sandlot was like his favorite movie for a stretch. And all of a sudden he's like pitching and he's got a huge leg kick and it's just imitation. So I think obviously the more kids are exposed to the better. I know you're a huge proponent and I am as well of playing as many sports you can acquiring as many skills as you can. I always think that, that that's important, you know, watching our daughter do gymnastics, dance, it just carry over carries over to so many things if you're you're well-rounded but watching her try and climb a rock wall when she's like three years old and you're terrified to a couple years later you're comfortable watching her do those things and it's fun to just see how much a kid can improve and i think that goes hand in hand with when i got here in 2018 my goal was to just see a full class through and like right now Devonte chandler's outside my office he uh he was a player in 2018 he's a freshman he played five years because of covid and now he wants to be in the field of performance. So he's interning with us. But my daughter happened to be born like the exact week that our freshman started. So I've known her for the same amount of time that I've known guys like Devontae and, and the other guys in that class. And you see 
your kid grow from an infant who can do nothing to like, at this point, you're like, gosh, when did you get so old? (laughs) And it happens before your eyes, but it's insane to think of how much of an impact, obviously you're getting guys at a a completely different stage of their life where they're more developed, but the same thing, like you see what an impact you can have over four or five years through consistency and, you know, just making an environment where it's fun for guys, it's challenging and, and how they can grow not only athletically, but just as, as general humans through some of the skills that you help them with. I think it's just rewarding to think of it in that perspective of you see the guys, they don't really change that much versus you see your kid. They have these stark differences and in, in their actual size, but it's such a long period of time. If you work in the college sector with how long you get to work with athletes. And I think it's easy to underestimate how much of an impact you make on them just really globally, if you're invested in it. But athletically, it's just, you know, there's idiots out there like, oh, you can't do plyometrics until you can swat two times body weight. Like, well, my daughter would completely disagree with you. She can jump off of a five foot tall ladder and and land and be perfectly healthy. And just watching them do anything and everything and trying to learn from the aspect of like failing is such a critical part of getting better and growth. And I think that's like in some sports models and coaching models it's like such a fear of failure because there's this extreme punishment if you fail it's your fault versus you have to fail to to improve at some of those things so a lot of different directions there but i mean having a kid is obviously one of the biggest impacts on my life and just how you treat people too like now it's it's so different when you're coaching someone of thinking like if this was your kid how would you want them treated in that situation i think it'll give you a different perspective yeah yeah for sure i'm sure too even like you said like college level athletes they don't grow like kids do but i would imagine even just watching videos like sometimes i'll watch old videos of my kids like from a few years back or see pictures of them it's like man i can barely recognize them like from back then yeah. to who they are now but even i'm sure college freshmen to a senior oh, no, you know yeah it's the exact same way like we have videos of some of the the incoming guys and we look back and like hot dang you don't notice it day to day because you see them every single day. But when you kind of sit back or like you said, you just go through your phone, you're looking at old videos like, holy cow, look at this guy when he's a freshman, like just such a difference. But you get so lost in seeing them every day that you're like, oh man, he hasn't done much to improve this year. When it's like, they've come so freaking far. And uh, it's, it's definitely a helpful perspective. Yeah, for sure. All right. Last question for you, Nick, this is a quick one. All right. So, if you had to be caught doing one of the following with the football team, what would it be? One would be yourself wearing a Schmedium polo shirt. So you have to wear that to practice in the games. Two, waving a towel. I'm not maybe for five minutes duration. Or three, <laughs> having the team do jump, their warm up with jumping jacks on a counter whistle. Which of those, and you're forced to do one of them, <laughs> which of those would you pick uh, and why? Definitely uh, some jumping jacks on a whistle. I feel like everybody. It does it for some stupid reason. It's not completely on you. Like our team has had spurts where like one year we did it, one year we didn't. Like the head coach decide who does it. I don't have to lead it. I feel like I can back off and just laugh at it on my own. First, if I have to wear a schmedium the entire time or if I have to uh, wave the towel that falls on me. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Very good answer. Yeah, and there's some rhythm, there's some rhythm in jumping jacks too. There's some rhythm involved. So. Yeah. <laughs> All right, man. Well, hey, well, I, I know you got to get going, but thank you so much, Nick, for being on the show. It was great hearing you talk about these topics. And you know, for someone like myself not being in your environment, I learned so much from these things and it gives me so much information and ideas to consider. So 
appreciate you being on, man. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate you having me on again. It's always great. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. We'll see you next week.